Welcome back to the latest episode of Making Waves, the Backpacks preview series for the Women's World Cup 2023. On this episode, we're going to be talking about England and Spain and their opponents in their groups. On this episode, we'll be joined by Joe Brennan from Ars based in Spain and Susie Rack from The Guardian in the UK. And we're going to dive straight into our Group C chat containing Spain, Japan, Costa Rica and Zambia. Joining us on this edition of Making Waves and our special here on the back peg previewing the Women's World Cup is Joe Brennan from AS Newspaper in Madrid. And we're going to talk about Spain's chances. And thank you for joining us, Joe. Hey, guys. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, excited to talk about Spain and uh, what we think of the World Cup, which is really not far away now. No, less than two weeks until kickoff. And there's so much interest around this tournament. And there's a lot of interest around the Spanish team. So just speaking generally about the, this World Cup coming up, what is the interest like back home or back in Spain? Is it one filled with optimism, intrigue? Are the time zones playing a factor? It's a really, really weird one. Um, mainly, we'll, we'll get into the detail, I assume, later on. Mm. But just the whole like concept of the women's national team now, like the whole how it exists in people's minds now is just dominating everything it's it's been every press question for i don't know a, a year maybe more than just just under a year maybe and uh yeah it's a really weird one in terms of the interest people are interested um to an extent the tv deal i think that was in europe i'd done about where you mm. guys are but in europe it was really um late late and lately announced so it was just a couple of weeks ago i think that the tv deal got announced and that has kind of made people realize oh there's a world cup that we should be watching because there's no football apparently in summer um so now people are kind of getting into the idea and the press in madrid and barcelona have definitely been slowly but surely pushing the content on a daily basis maybe mm, they'll get like female football for example in my newspaper in us will get a page a day in the daily Mm -hmm. newspaper Mm -hmm. now we'll during the tournament as well we'll see that get more and more and that's how it gets into the minds of people you know more content more creation of things from the media and people will pick up on it and enjoy it because they've got really good reason to enjoy it because spanish football or women's football in spain sorry is really good like Mm. the standards um Mm. in i'd say most of the teams in the league play to a decent standard and then the top teams as i'm sure you know Mm. are like the top of the best of the best so there's really good reason for people to be interested and i genuinely hope they do um the people who are already interested in women's football that's a different topic whether they're going to be interested in this world cup or not because you've got two types of of uh people who are going to watch this or not it's the people who are interested in women's football already and the people who are not the people who are not i've just spoken about but for the women's football fans there comes a big question mark because a lot of people as we'll get into are not happy with the state of the national team so yeah i'm not sure if i've answered the question but it's just very complicated yep that's all no that's fair enough joe you have answered the question there but let's dive into the big issue right away then if that's the case because it is the most fascinating story backstory of this women's world cup right and aside from france i mean france is you know, similar in a, in a, in a couple of ways, right? Because it, I guess it's happened over a more, more protracted period of time. Mm. But this story with regards to the Spanish women's national team, what are its origins? How did this mutiny come about in effect, for want of a better word? 
Yeah, from us on the outside, it happened when Spain got eliminated from the Euros against England. Um, it was a defeat where Spain really thought they could beat England and they were close to beating England. They were close to, it was two mistakes, if I remember correctly, the two mm. English goals that led to England actually winning the match. And I think that's right, or at least at least yeah, equalised. Right. Um, yeah. And the disappointment after that, I'm talking from inside the federation and inside the team was huge. Mm. Um, and from then it started becoming public that there was more than just disappointment. It was in fact um, disagreements over certain things, how things were done. And it was more than just, look, we did really well. We could have um, beaten England another day, but you know, we've always got the world cup. It was more, look, we've lost because things are going wrong on the inside. And then I think it was around September, September time I'm not sure so it's all jumbled in my mm, mind yeah um between sort of that end of summer period the start of the club season it was revealed that 15 players had decided to become I'm doing air quotes with my hands for the no, listeners <laughs> unselectionable because there's not really a word unavailable for selection I suppose is the mm. a bit of an awkward way of saying it yeah and this was due, well, originally the letter or the email didn't actually say what the reasons were. And I've got the quote here because I don't want to get it wrong. It said, due to what happened and the situation that has generated, something of which you, the Federation, are already aware, it's affecting my emotional state and therefore my health. And that was all the details that we had in the public domain of what happened. Nothing else came out and mm. not much has come out yeah. since then. I mean, I'm talking almost a year ago. So basically the 15 players are the 15 were the 15 best players in the squad let's yep. more or less it's up for debate but it was the Barcelona majority plus a couple of other players from um Real Sociedad a couple of Manchester City players mm. but they've all got these certain links and I mean Spain is quite a, a country that quite like quite like debate and mm -hmm. it quickly very quickly became entrenched us versus them and you're either on on the player's side or on the federation side and that depends a lot on your team as well so the Real Madrid players have stayed through it all. So Real Madrid fans support the players. And the Barcelona players who have not gone with the manager, well, those fans are with the players and against the manager. But the origins of it seem to have come from things such as conditions in terms of transport, in terms of scheduling, in terms of training standards, things like this. The problem is that this information has just come out in 2023, more or less since the players have come back, some of them have come back. Uh, but prior to that, so all from the end of the Euros and then when the news came out to through Christmas, round through New Year, we didn't know. We just had my emotional state and mental health are affected. And of course, the horrible thing and the, but the somewhat natural thing is to jump to the worst conclusion and call Jorge Villa X, Y and Z and words that don't need repeating anywhere. Mm -hmm. Basically, nobody's done anything well in this whole period. Nobody, not the players or the federation because the players could have been clearer and said look it's not this because in spain as well we've had cases of mm, managers male managers taking advantage of players mm, making sexual remarks things that have no place in football or in society in general mm. but the fact that they didn't say that created this doubt and created this vacuum and space for people to fill it with horrible ideas that now it's come out that it wasn't that or that it wasn't that there was no evidence of that there was no inkling of that there was no leaking of that you know these sort of things if it happens it would more than likely come out to the public it wouldn't be mm. it wouldn't be hidden something as serious as what people were suggesting and then 
yeah, from there, it's just grown and grown. And here we are where we are. But it's just been a huge mess and a huge shame as well, because this Spanish team genuinely is brilliant. The players are, are just, I get, I what I look at the squad and I just think, wow, you look at those, the attacking players that Villa has had to leave home, leave here in Madrid or in Spain or whatever. And you think, wow, these are genuinely top, top level players. So it's just such a shame that this whole thing has dominated everybody's thinking and people think of the national team, they think of this when that shouldn't be the case. And it makes me a bit sad, to be honest, because we all want to talk about football. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of things to unpack with what's going on with the Spanish national team. And it's difficult to get a read, really, where they sit at the moment, because, yes, there's still a lot of this uh, discontent that you're referring to and a lot of question marks surrounding some of the players that have come back in and the ones that are still missing. But on the pitch, their results since the last year have been pretty good for the most part, where is it? Where do we sit? Because even with everything going on, they still sit third in the table for the favourites to take the whole thing out. They're still one of the teams that are most people's picks to make at least a semi-final, I think. Yeah, I agree. At the end of the day, the players are really good. And that's just, it's such a simple oversimplification of everything. But talent wins football matches and the players that they've got, like, if you just look at some of the names, like we've got, I don't need to tell you how good yeah. the two-time Ballon d'Or winner yeah. Alexia Boudéas is, but she's just unbelievable. Yeah. She's not fully fit, and that could be that's a question in itself whether she's going to play and what role uh, she's going to have. But um, yeah, I don't need to tell you and your listeners how good, for example, the Barcelona core of the team is. Mm. Um, in terms of where we sit, I suppose I can't answer that from a Spanish perspective because that's very as I said entrenched in what team you support and what side of the debate you follow from Mm -hmm. my view I kind of like to think the players that are back want to be back and the federation have made changes sufficient enough for them to come back some players haven't come back because they don't think that the changes are big enough for them to return on the base of their values and things like that that they've said publicly um it's a bit of a marriage of convenience I think I also suspect in this World Cup with Villam, maybe some of the older players who won't be at the same age when the next World Cup comes around, maybe the generation that they've got now isn't going to be the same in the next tournament. It might be a bit of that. But um, I think nobody came out of the mutiny and the whole debate well. So I just would like not not forget about it or anything because definitely we need to we need to improve the conditions of the national team because I don't I don't want anybody to think I'm sticking up for anybody because mm. nobody's come out of it well. Conditions do, do need to improve in Spain. More money needs to be put in to the federation for women's football and the league as well. We can get into the league debate, but that's another podcast where <laughs> players are protesting against the league mm. um, because of a thing called the Convenio Colectivo, which is like the collective agreement of the players for the minimum wages and things like this and the conditions. Um, these things need to change like drastically. You know, we need... VAR, we need goal like, well, VAR's, if you want VAR, you can have like your opinion on VAR, but we need the same things that the elite level's got. If we want an elite league, then we want to have the elite facilities, you know? We don't want AstroTurf pitches because players can get injured. We don't want um, to travel on buses because I know Australia's big and you're Mm. both going to go, yeah, but it's nothing like Australia. I know, I know, but (laughs) nobody likes sitting on a coach for six hours going from one point of Spain to the other and to then play football the next day to travel back. And we need better. We need more investment and more um, money in it, basically, and a better standard of play, better things to just to enjoy it more. Mm. You know, it's it's these it's these footballers' careers as well, and um, 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know where we sit. It's really complicated. Mm, the players that are back are happy with the changes or are at least content with the fact that they've been listened to. Mm. Um, so I suppose we can take their word for it, that if they're happy, we can enjoy them on the pitch. Mm. So while also remembering that things do need to change fundamentally within Spanish football from the highest level um, and people need to stop talking and start pulling their finger out, basically. Yeah. No, well said. Well said, because uh, and correct us if 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 I'm wrong, the RFF RFEF, so the Spanish Football Federation, are the, responsible for uh, the running of the women's league as it is uh, right now. Is that correct? Profession uh, the the uh, first division. It's very complicated. It is complicated. Um, okay. The league is separate. It is separate. Um, okay. However, things like uh, the referees are given by the federation. So if there's a disagreement between the league and the federation, maybe one day, which happened a few, maybe last season or the season before, the referees don't turn up to a yeah. game. Yeah. You know, just a top a top division Spanish match. Atletico Madrid, I remember it was. No referees. <laughs> you know, we just get things like this because people disagree. Um, and since everything's separate and everybody wants more power, more influence and more things in their pockets, such as mm-hmm. money, for example, yep. um, then there's always going to be fighting and disagreements and things like that. So with that, is it more so a case now that the players have taken it upon themselves, realising that this is a Women's World Cup, realising that there is potential here for Spain to to win the World Cup? Is that where the reason why they've come back and said, hey, you know, well, yes, the conditions may have improved, so there, there may have been some ground conceded between the relevant parties. But it seems like from the outside looking in that, some players have decided, hey, we've got a, sh- a real shot at winning this. And as Nathan's alluded to before, I mean, you know, Spain is definitely considered within the top four chances to take this tournament out. Has it come down to that, really, that this is player-driven intrinsically and they've said, hey, realising there's a, a real legitimate chance to win this tournament and that's why they've come back? It's a good point. Um, things like sponsors um, have a huge influence on players, basically, and if a sponsor, say, let's pick an example, just out of thin air at night, say to player X, mm-hmm. if you go to the World Cup and wear these boots, we'll pay you a million euros. Mm. It becomes difficult to say no. And I don't want to just put it down to that. Sure. Because it's also the fact of, I don't want to miss out on a World Cup because I'm 27, 28, 29, 30, 31 even. Mm-hmm. And this might be my last World Cup. And even though we've got our differences, this is the World Cup and we can represent Spain and really become like figures in football history or in Spanish history, you know, to mm. do something. Everybody wants to play in the World Cup and I'm sure that the big players and the players who are not in the squad for their personal reasons, I don't think they're sitting on the beach thinking, I'm so happy I'm sitting on the beach, <laughs> not going to the World Cup. They want to play, but the thing is that they're standing by their morals and their values and their opinions that they gave at the beginning and they're not accepting these changes, however big or small, I don't know, they are from the Federation. And then it brings up an interesting question as well of what about those players who are on the same team in the in their club team, but some have gone to the national team and some have stayed. What what happens there? And that's I don't know the answer to that one either, but <laughs> it's an interesting thought experiment. Mm. But um, yeah, it's just a great shame. <laughs> you say that the fourth or in the top three or four favourites, I um, I hope they are, to be honest, because... I don't. I definitely don't feel that the atmosphere in Spain is mm, of the extent where people would think they would be third or fourth favourites. It doesn't wow. feel like that. 
over here. Yeah. Um, feels quite tame and quite timid unless you ask somebody who actually knows about women's football. And then, as I say, mm. they fall on that particular side. Um, but it's an interesting question about being about being favourites. But yeah, as I say, the people who are not in the squad are not happy to be mm. sitting on the beach and watching from Mallorca, Marbella, wherever they are. They want to be there. They yeah, want to, everybody to watch. Wants to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it really is interesting. And you say from from what we can see is that it really is unresolved. There's so much division that remains within the playing squad, the ones that have gone, the ones that haven't. And I did a rough count of the 15. It's still the majority of the players that are absent from this World Cup. There's only a handful that have decided to come on board. And that raises a lot of questions both on the pitch and in the dressing room in case, say, for instance, if something goes wrong in one of the earlier group games, is it going to all fall apart? Is there a bit of a fragility in the dressing room at the moment between the players that have gone, the manager and the federation? I believe that the atmosphere is one of mutual agreement. Not you scratch my back, I scratch yours, but look, we're here. We are professional footballers. You're a professional manager. You're a professional football federation. We're going to work through this World Cup and let's see if we can win it. Curious thing is nobody in Spain has actually said that they want to think they can win the World Cup or that they want to win it. They're just really playing that down. But the atmosphere is not everybody's holding hands and skipping up and down the training ground, but they're not all eating in separate rooms and, you know, putting salt in people's tea and things like that. It's just one of professionalism and mutual awareness of the situation that, look, things aren't great, but we're, we're here to do a job and let's do it. I think that's especially true with the more experienced players, the captains as well, um, players like Irene Paredes, um, who is, I think she's around 30, maybe maybe 31, 32. And I'm sure she's aware that this might well be her last major tournament, whether she's completely happy with how things are going or not. I know she wasn't one of the players who um, wrote the letter, but I know that the players who are there are all aware of the situation, you know? So, yeah, in terms of on the pitch is an interesting question. I think it it's cliche to say, but when you're on the pitch, if things start well, then things might flow. If things don't go well, then it will be a test of how far that mutual understanding of the professional situation can stretch. Um, it's hypothetical to say that if they lose the first game, everybody's, everybody's going to fight on the middle of the pitch. Um, but I think that the understanding and the maturity of the those who have who have negotiated and come back is sufficient to be able to get through this you know i don't i don't imagine anything french levels of mm. arguing and drama i mean we've we've had the drama of the story but we've not had the drama of the of things like backstabbing or fighting or comments you know we've not had anything personal said in public or anything where it just steps over that mark of, look, I don't agree with you, but I'm going to work with you. We've all got those colleagues, you know, that you work with and fine, but you wouldn't go for a drink with them on a Friday, you know? I think it's a bit like that. It's just a fascinating story. It it really is. It's really complicated. And it's complicated. (laughs) It's it's got so many layers to it. It's just... Off the top of my head, I don't think I've heard anything like it, to be fair. Yeah, I can't think of anything... um... I can't think of anything similar. The The interesting thought experiment that I've done many times in my head, and it's not one that I do generally is comparing to men's football, but mm-hmm. if this were the men's national team saying mm-hmm. that they weren't happy with 
Luis de la Fuente, the current men's manager's methods or things like that. And they, 15 players stopped the stop becoming available for the national team, what would happen? Oof. It'd be an interesting test of Luis Rubiales, who's the president of the federation. It'd be an interesting test of his um, his eggs, as they say in Spain. His, yep. his, uh... Coyons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's um, As I say, I don't like comparing to the men's yeah, that's right. game in general because it's just a different world. It's like yes, comparing it rugby to golf, but it's an interesting one. And it is interesting. Of these 12 players who haven't returned to the team... Is it as cut and dry as all 12 of them would certainly be in the squad? The vast majority of them would be starters in this team. Is it a case that these are first-choice players that are all, have all put their hand up and say, I'm out? Or is it some of them more squad players, ones that may or may not have been picked in the squad initially, just as a bit of context for these players? Yes, some of them are fantastic, but are all of them at that absolute top level? Yeah, it, it's a good question. Um, more players were negotiating with the Federation to come back than have actually come back which means that Villa has actually made sporting decisions in terms of his selection rather than just this player said they weren't going to come, now they are, so they're back. Villa's actually taken everybody who's available into account and selected from them and has left some out. Mm. So Sandra Paños, who's the Barcelona goalkeeper, yeah. is not in the squad, although she is said to have been negotiating with the Federation, which means that it's a sporting decision by Villa to leave out the Champions League winning Sandra Baños, which is yeah. a shock, you know, yeah. which is an interesting question in itself. What Villa thinks of the goalkeepers and who who he's going to go for. He's also brought in Catacol, who is mm. Sandra Baños' substitute in Barcelona. Which that's just uh, Sandra, whether she knew or not before, must have been. Uh, yeah, she must have. <laughs> she'll have dropped a glass if she was holding one when she found out that <laughs> she wasn't going. Um, but Misa, just to put the name, is the current number one goalkeeper mm. and she's for Real Madrid and it's looking like she's going to be the number one for the foreseeable with Catacol mm. as the second choice for the longer term but yeah just to quickly sum up the rest of the players players like um Laia Alexandri who plays for Manchester City as a centre-back she is an interesting case because she can also play as a centre defensive midfielder that number six position which Padri from who's Barcelona's midfielder is not in the squad through her own decisions. So Laia was thought to be a great substitute for her because she had been used by Villa as the number six before. And Villa's chosen not to take her. Mm. And he's instead taken a young player from Barcelona called Maria Perez, who's had like four games experience or something crazy like that. Um, So yeah, it's not as cut and dry as the players who have decided they want to be made available for selection are back and they've been put in the squad. It's not as simple as that. There are some players who would who haven't said they've come back, but maybe they wouldn't get in the squad now anyway. So yeah. things evolve and um, it's it's a lot more complex than just 15 players in, 15 players out. It's good to see that Alexia Puteas has decided to make herself available. And you mentioned her earlier. And she is the uh, Ballon d'Or Player of the Year and the FIFA Awarded Player of the Year and an amazing footballer. And, you know, it'll be an absolute privilege to see her in our part of the world. Aside from Alexia Padillas, who are the players that we should be keeping an eye out for in this squad? It's a really good question because I um, was thinking about this for a long time. I don't want to mention any Barcelona players because I feel that's a bit of an obvious choice. You, know, you can just say uh, uh, Aitana, for example, who's the midfielder, the little diminutive number eight, who's just an absolute joy. Mm. Just, just everything, but I'm not going to mention any Barcelona players. So I will say 
I'm still not, I've got my list, I'm looking at it, but I'm not sure. I'm going to go for Ola Carmona, who's the left back, plus okay. for Real Madrid. Yep. And people may have seen her before, they may know her. She's not that much of a surprise in Spain, mm. but maybe for people who are coming into this World Cup with less focus on the Spanish team, Olga's a really exciting player who mm. has really shot up in my estimation and in the estimation of a lot of people over the past year. She had kind of a breakthrough game against England in the Euros yep. uh, last year where she was fantastic. And since then, yeah. oof, she's just shot off like a rocket. So Olga at left back, um, Eva Navarro, who is a winger for Atletico. She was in the squad, which was came as quite a surprise to me because some really good players were left out. Like I was hinting at before, some really good players were left out and Eva came in, but I think she's a really exciting, direct, forward-thinking attacker who's got that something that always makes me rub my fingers together that I don't really know what it is, but something always happens with when she plays, you know, she'll maybe have one movement or one mm, cross or she'll take somebody on and it will just create something that another player wouldn't wouldn't see or wouldn't think of. So she's really interesting. Um, can I keep going? Yep, sure. <laughs> okay. Jenny, Jenny Edmoso is the least, of, is the worst choice ever for give me a player who I don't know who is going to do well in this World Cup because Jenny's okay. the top scorer in the national team. She's played all over Spain. She played in Mexico now for Pachuca. Mm-hmm. And she's the, she was until Alexia had this amazing sort of explosion. She was the face of the national team, but she's been playing now with this system as a number 10. And it's interesting to see her new role in this side as a creator rather than the goal scorer. Mm. So just keep an eye out for that. Jenny playing playing the passes into players behind like Eva or like Olga who'll be bombing up the left side. Um, who else? Let me choose somebody else. Oh, and Atenea. Atenea's a winger as well for Real Madrid. Going, I was going to ask you about Atenea. Yeah, she's yeah. just like a box of fireworks. Yeah, um, she... I, don't know, I don't know how to explain Atenea. She's Very exciting really, player. She's really frustrating sometimes because she'll have off days where she couldn't hit a barn door, but then when she's on it, my God, there's no defender in the world who can stop her because, one, because of her pure pace, she's just like lightning. Mm-hmm. And then she's also got that flash of skill, that drop of the shoulder. She can come inside, she can come on her left, come on her right. And uh, yeah, maybe she misses a few chances or skews a few crosses and you'll see her. She's either really happy or really angry. So you'll definitely see her on the pitch if she plays. But uh, yeah, keep an eye out for for Adenia, especially in moments where the game needs changing. So I could see her being a really useful substitute. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there because I could mention everybody (laughs) in this one. Uh, but me talking about the third choice goalkeeper saying they're really good is probably not probably a waste of time. Yeah, I'll just I'll leave it there. It, it's all part of the backstory, there, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I think it's prediction time now, Joe. And we're going to turn our attention to each of the match days and how you think they're going to pan out. Costa Rica, Zambia, and Japan are the matches in order. I think it's safe to say that Japan is the most interesting game for Spain coming out of it. Are you expecting that game on match day three to be a shootout for first and second in the group? Are you expecting three points from Costa Rica and Zambia? On paper, yes. Although my kind of somebody in my in my mind is telling me watch out for Zambia because Kundanangi is I'm not sure um how popular she is outside of Spain, but She's the striker for Zambia. They've got Chanda on one wing, Banda on the other, and Kundanangi down the middle. Mm-hmm. And Kundanangi from Madrid, not Real Madrid, but the other Madrid, mm. um, has just been the biggest revelation this season. I can remember. She's just pure pace and power and two-footedness. So 
that's Zambia's plan is just to play the long ball in behind her. Um, I've gone off on a Zambia tangent. That's um, <laughs> Yeah, hopefully six points for the first two so Spain can be comfortable going into the last game. Um, Costa Rica, I just expect. Spain played Panama a week ago mm. or so and they thrashed them. Yeah. I expect Costa Rica game to be similar. Um, sorry to Costa Ricans listening. <laughs> Zambia, as I've said, potential banana skin, but I would imagine that their team is just too disorganised and mm. a, bit, a bit on the... It's too crazy to get anything from Spain. So we'll eventually overpower them, even if they concede maybe from a long ball, like I was saying. And then Japan will be interesting. Um, Spain just played against Denmark. When did they play? Yesterday. Mm. Or the day before. I can't yeah. remember anyway. And it was a comfortable win, but it was quite an interesting game because Denmark definitely gave them something to think about. And I think Japan will be similar. I think Spain will win just by pure power and the amount of the options that they've got. But yeah, it will definitely be the most interesting game and the, probably looking at it now, the one that's going to give them the most trouble. Not in terms of getting out of the group, but as you say, fighting for first and second. But I expect Spain to to get all the points and get out of the group comfortably, I I think. And just quickly, who do you see as the biggest threat coming out of Group A for a round of 16 opponent? I've done lots of um, sort of drawings of who can meet who and who can beat who and whatever. Group A, you've got to look at Norway, really, with Hegerberg. Um, well, with the threat, with, oh, sorry, no, uh, Hansen, um, mm. who for me is a player who I don't know how she hasn't won Ballon d'Or because every week in Barcelona, she just she's just unbelievable. Mm. Um yeah, Norway could cause trouble there. Um, what do you guys think? Um, oh, look, I've got a sneaking suspicion that New Zealand will come out in second of that That's group. why I asked, because um, the host nation, you know, mm, I just, I, I, I was thinking that, yeah. Mm. So that's why I asked, yeah. I've just got a suspicion that New Zealand could could sneak it. If Spain don't win it, Joe, who wins it? Who takes it out? Sorry, say that again. If, if, Spain, if Spain don't take out the, uh, the title... Which oh, nation does? Oh. Yeah. Oh wow. Um. Well. Oh no. I would say England, but the the defensive um absences they've got are just huge. Uh, the USA are up there. France are up there. Germany are up there. Could Australia do it? Um. I don't know. Uh, I'll pick. Uh, let's go Germany just to say somebody. But yeah, there's Ooh. so many teams. <laughs> Germany are my sneaky pick to take it out. So I'm glad to get someone on my side for that. Joe, (laughs) thank you very much for joining us here on Making Waves, our preview for Group C. And we'll speak to you uh, in the future. Thanks a lot, guys. Been a pleasure. Laz, let's talk about the rest of Group C. Spain in there with Japan, Costa Rica and Zambia. Shall we start with the Japanese? You don't want to carry on with Spain? The, the, the soap opera of the uh, Women's World Cup so far, I think. <laughs> Lads, we can speak about it all night, but uh, I'm conscious of the time and we should move on to the other teams in this group because we got Group D to talk about as well. Yes, we do. But uh, I just Let's wonder, talk. I just wonder, Nathan, if it'll be the story that keeps on giving with this Women's World Cup. It certainly will be. It you certainly so? will be. Yeah. It yeah. Is, it's going to come up again, surely, yeah. once the tournament starts. Yeah, it's just fascinating. It really is. Really is it is, but yes, there are three other nations that we need to discuss. To discuss, and obviously, we've uh, mentioned you know we've got to discuss Costa Rica, Zambia, and our Asian counterparts in Japan. Indeed, we, let's we, start with Japan. Yep, let's go uh, for it. Narashiko, 
And so their, their nickname, they're ranked 11th in the world, and they are a Women's World Cup champion back in 2011. Mm-hmm. In 2015, they came second. In 2019, though, out in the round of 16 to the Dutch, so looking to bounce back. Uh, two Women's Asian Cups in 2014 and 2018. They lost in the semifinal in 2022 to China. Quarterfinal of the Olympics in Tokyo, out to Sweden. Uh, they are second favourites to come out of this group. Second favourites to win the group, I should say. Yes. And quite rightly so. They will be looking to cause a bit of a ruckus and really just straight off the bat, lads, if they don't make the quarterfinals, I think this will be seen as a failure. Yeah, the only success that um, we'll be able to consider is the success of Japan's away strip. Oh, it's amazing. That's a brilliant. It is oh, probably incredible. A, the away jersey of the whole tournament, to be fair. Well, the, oh, I mean, <laughs> I, I like the materials. There's a lot of good ones. There there's are a lot, a lot of good ones. ones, but just spot on, right? But I like yes. the Germany kit too. Yeah, you would, but no. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, and that's something we haven't discussed about uh, on the during this series uh, is with regard to the kits and how good these kits have been. Um, In particular, the Adidas ones. I know you're a fan of the Adidas ones as opposed to Nike. But um, that being said, that being said, Laz, I will say that being said, the Matilda shirt for this tournament is. Quite possibly the best Australian national team kit in my lifetime. Home? Home kit, yeah. I would argue both. As, as far as home kits go, mm. I think this year's Matilda shirt is better than all of the Socceroos. Including the uh, the iconic Spear shirt? That's uh, too far back. Too far back. <laughs> <laughs> I I would have to agree with you. I've got one now. Oh, you bought one. Yep. Mm. And it's, it's amazing. It the away, amazing. I bought my daughter the away one. And mm. the away one is just brilliant, brilliant, yeah. absolutely brilliant. But we'll speak more about <laughs> kits on the uh, final wrap-up show before the tournament starts. Yes. Uh, but yes, Japan, Blaz. Japan, yes. Back to your quick point, Nathan, with regards to <laughs> what would be considered a failure. I think and where we think Japan will probably end up. Uh, look, I think, uh, as I said in our chat with Joe, I believe Japan will be second in the group, uh, which would mean a... You know, a potential round of 16 game against Norway. And I've given a spoiler alert there with regards to Group A. But, and the game by game for later on. And the game by game for later on. But, yeah, I, I look, they're not to be taken lightly, though, this Japanese side. They could cause an upset against Spain here and actually take out the group. It, it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Do I think that's likely to happen? I don't, but because I just think Spain are too good. Right. And look, Spain could probably put two decent teams together of 23 and be in, you know, finish in the top four of this tournament, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. The team is that strong. Um, do you think it's a real carrot for finishing first in this group? Because yes, Norway's a good side, but I think Spain and Japan would be able to handle whoever they come up against in the round, in the round of 16, whether it is the Norwegians, the Swiss, or the Kiwis. Mm, yeah, geez. Look, yeah. It, it, that's a good point again, Nathan, that you've put. I mean, it, you know, yeah, there is, I guess there is a carrot. Yeah, it would have to be. It has to be considered a carrot because both of these games are winnable from this group's perspective, like from these participants' perspective, right, in the round of 16. So, but yeah, look, I'm a bit concerned about Japan's form coming into this tournament though, right? So strong win against uh, Canada, a 1-0 loss to the US and a 1-0 loss to Brazil. Right, and that's uh, during the February window. But in the April window, just gone, 2-1 win against Portugal, 
and a 1-0 loss to Denmark. So they are inconsistent. Um, they've had wins against New Zealand since July last year. They've had wins against Nigeria, New Zealand, and losses to England and Spain, and a heavily lost to England right? Uh, in, in the realm of 4-0. So they're very up and down. Yeah, very much so. And you're quite right to mention inconsistent. It is hard to get a read on where they sit in the pecking order. And a, a fairly friendly round of 16 clash will help them. And to sort of answer my own question previously, the carrot for finishing first is you don't play the US in the quarterfinal. You get yeah, to that's face right. them in the semifinal. Yeah. That's right. That all goes to plan. Um, mm. Not that Sweden's that much easier, but it certainly is a team you'd rather play than the US. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. That's a but fair point. Japan to get to this tournament. They qualified from the Women's Asian Cup last year. They beat Thailand 7-0 in the quarterfinals. That was effectively them getting uh, to Australia-New Zealand 2023. You mentioned their recent form. They are having a warm-up friendly against Panama in uh, Sendai, back home in Japan. Uh, That's coming up uh, very soon. And then they play Zambia, Costa Rica, and Spain. We'll talk about this with Joe during our Spain chat, but the way the fixture list has come out, Laz, leaving Spain to last, I'm probably going to... Uh, give away another spoiler here, but I'm expecting both Spain and Japan to be on six points coming into match day three. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's just made the rest of this preview redundant. No, <laughs> it, it kind of has to be honest. But, no, but you're um, right. Yeah, that's the expectation. Yeah, it is. And they're low-pressure games, really, in the first two. Mm. Essentially, I'm not going to be as harsh and say they're warm-up fixtures, but they sh- their expectation is that they would win both those games. Both Spain yeah. and Japan should be Zambia and Costa Rica. Agreed. Maybe, maybe some hiccups along the way, but you would expect them to have maximum points. Yep, agreed. It's interesting where we place this Japan team. If they come up against Norway in the round of 16, I think I would put them slightly higher. Yep, yep, Beyond that's that, fair. I think it's a bridge too far. Yeah, look, I, I think that, that's fair. Look, I think the way that I would put this is Spain finish first, they'll go deep, right? If Japan finish first, I think quarters is where it ends. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Because if we we get our prediction hats on, I think I would have Sweden going through over Japan mm. if I've got the map if I've got the mapping right mm-hmm. in my mind. Yep. Um, but let's talk about Japan a little bit more. Yep, they they'll line up in a five four one most likely. I feel uh, interesting that there's uh, only four forwards in the in the name squad and yeah, three yeah. of them play home in Japan. One in Sweden playing for Hammerby. That's uh, Michael mm-hmm. Hamano, mm-hmm. who's only got who's only nineteen years of age, only mm. four caps, so quite inexperienced. So. It's interesting to see where the goal is going to come from in this team. Laz, who's your player to watch? Look, from a goal-scoring perspective, it'll be uh, Mina Tanaka from uh, Kobe Leonessa. 63 caps, 24 goals. Um, I, I would have to say that their player to watch is uh, Saki Kumagai, who is the captain, who is the defense, uh, who's in the defense there. Plays at Roma, 134 caps. Their strongest player, the most experienced player, without a doubt. And, you know, they'll be looking to her to... Um, to lead the side on the park and, and be you know really influential. The other one that I'd like to uh, point out is uh, midfielder Hinasugita, Portland Thorns, thirty-seven caps. You know, looks to have uh, you know a bit of quality around uh, about it. Only twenty-six years of age as well. Yeah, very interesting. Two crucial players for mine. I've got uh, Hasegawa mm-hmm. from Manchester City. Yep, uh, definitely a bit more of a, an anchor in the midfield. Yeah, I think she plays and... number six, doesn't she? Like for yeah. Japan, from what I've seen, yeah. Yeah, she'll play as a defensive midfielder, and she needs to be a little bit of a rock in this side, I think, looking at how Japan will play out, and particularly with how I'm expecting that matchup to go against Spain, where mm. typical Spain will have most of the possession. What she does in transition is going to be make or break for Japan in that in that match. 
Yeah, great. So for mine, she's the the player for mine, the key player to to look out for. You got uh, Jun Endo, who's uh, at uh, Angel City. Thirty-two caps, three goals to her name. Again, you know, only twenty-three years of age. And uh, Angel City, if you're not familiar with the story, get familiar with it because they are a really, really good point in case as far as a women's football team started from the ground. Yes, they've got a lot of celebrity, you know, founders and investors, but the work that they do uh, away from the football pitch is is incredible. Yeah, a good story indeed. Laz, shall we move over to Costa Rica? Indeed. Las Ticas, 36th in the world, and they didn't qualify for the 2019 Women's World Cup. They qualified for 2015. It was their only appearance ever at this tournament. They edged Spain to third place in the group back uh, in 2015, which is an interesting dynamic for 2023. I'll be very surprised if uh, that can repeat itself. (laughs) Times have changed and how. Yes, and uh, they are long odds to get out of this group, but uh, maybe they can spring a surprise. It certainly would be one, though. There's a, a, a big squad that has been named. Uh, no final 23 as of yet from Amelia Valverde, the manager. Uh, looks like a side that have really been struggling in recent form. There's a lot of losses on this list, yeah. including losses to Nigeria, Poland, Scotland, 4-0. That one sticks out a bit. Yeah. Uh, 4-0 to Venezuela. And uh, they lost to a, a Central Caribbean select team as well. Yeah, it doesn't look good. I mean, they did have a 2-0 win to Haiti just recently, but it just does not look good. They have got a, a friend against South Africa planned um, just uh, days before they make their appearance at the World Cup. But, yeah, I'm not holding out much hope for this side, to be honest, Nathan. Unfortunately, given the, given the results over the last 12 months, it's not been good. It's not been good at all. No, and looking at this squad, there's a lot of players based in Costa Rica and you would you would hope that there'd be some more maybe based in um NWSL yeah yeah or or even Europe uh, there's a couple around like Melissa Herrera at Bordeaux mm-hmm. 26 years of age also at Glasgow City we have a Chin Chia who's one that's very interesting 22 year old she's becoming a bit more prominent in uh, her club team there mm-hmm. um, my key player is Raquel Rodriguez though for Portland Thorns mm-hmm. she was uh, heavily involved in uh, the qualification bout it was a 3-0 win over Panama that got him to this tournament. She's got, she got on the score sheet on that day, and she'll need to get on the score sheet again uh, this time around if Costa Ricans bring a big surprise and get out of this group. Hey, they're prone to it, Costa Rica. They've done it before as a national team. Yeah, look. Talking, uh, about, talking about 2014 there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am going to point out Carolina Venegas, the 31-year-old, plays uh, for Atlas in Mexico, 72 caps, 18 goals. I think that um, that might be a player to watch as far as them going forward. But look, they've got a bit of experience. You know, they've got a stalwart and uh, Shirley Cruz. It's hard to say because we don't know what the final makeup of the squad is and if uh, Shirley Cruz will be there. But 109 caps, 34 goals, considered to be the captain of the of the side. But um, no, I'm glad you mentioned Melissa Herrera there and uh, Priscilla Chinchilla as well. Yeah, they're players to watch. But look, I don't hold out. Um, uh, much hope for them. Do you think their goals will come from Raquel Rodriguez if they are to score? She's a goal-scoring midfielder. Yeah. She'll be looking to bomb on a bit. and um, Plays a number eight role from, from number what eight. I've seen, yeah. Yeah, a bit looking to get those unmarked runs late in the penalty area. Maybe we'll see two strikers in this team as well. Mm. So something extra to think about. I think a lot of these teams in this group will be playing a back four. So two strikers marking two centre-backs. That allows for a late run from the midfield. Raquel yep. Rodriguez maybe one to fulfill that potential and uh, cause an extra problem. 
uh, a third woman run, I suppose. Mm. Um, but yes, it, it's the game against Zambia for this set of players. Yeah, I agree. That's the one that they will have circled out in in bright red ink for which ha- three potential points. You know, which will go through match days um, shortly. But yeah, it's if there's a spring of surprise, they're going to have to get a, a point off either Spain or Japan here. And the question is, is which one of those uh, of those two nations of you know of either Costa Rica and Zambia will be able to snag a point off Spain or Japan. So do you see Costa Rica doing that? No, to be honest. Mm. As a blunt answer, I don't. Yeah, same. I think which one will be more likely, just thinking stylistically, Spain will be more prone to a, a quick counterattack, the way yeah. they set up. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they can hold out for something like a one-all, mm. but it's, it's still long odds. It's still long odds. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. I have to agree with Let's you. Let's move on to Zambia, Les. I don't want to agree with you, but I have to agree with you. <laughs> you should disagree with me on principle. <laughs> <laughs> just just, just for the, just to be contrarian and, you know, just yep. the hell of it. For no, the sake of it. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, Les, we're on to talk about Zambia in a moment. And uh, we recorded our chat before the game they played against Germany. Correct. Uh, which could very well have changed our opinions on Zambia, but uh, we weren't to know at the time. No, but has it changed your opinion on Germany winning the World Cup? I think it has changed our views slightly on Zambia and where they'll be placed, right? I still maintain that Spain will beat them, maybe not by 4-0, right? But <laughs> And not by 6-0 on this side either. That's right. <laughs> but, yeah, um, amazing result. An amazing result. Yeah, incredible, incredible. I'm still going to stick to my guns because it'll be worse if I change and then they go and win it anyway. Correct. But, uh yes. Maybe it's a wake-up call for Germany coming into this tournament. Yeah, and it looks like that thing that um, there will be surprises. We've said that there will be blowouts and there will be bound to be surprises and upsets during the course of this world, uh, upcoming World Cup. So uh, it's definitely one to stay tuned for. And, and you know, and we're not afraid to say that we're wrong and that we'll get it wrong. <laughs> Chances are we probably will. Undoubtedly, uh, we'll get something wrong. Though. Right. So, yeah. So, uh, but um, uh, kudos to Zambia. Just incredible. Well, it shows there's no easy beats at this World Cup. Even if there's eight teams on debut, the lowest ranked team just knocked knocked off one of the favourites. There you go. Zambia, the Copper Queens, on debut at the Women's World Cup, 77th ranked in the world. They are the lowest ranked side at the tournament. Uh, WAFCON last year, they made it to the semi-finals. They lost to South Africa. Mm. Uh, It's their best ever. They'd only ever been out of the group stage in the past. 2020 Olympics, they were there. They uh, finished ahead of China in the group stage, but behind the Dutch and the Brazilians. And this is a side uh, full of intrigue, I think. So a World Cup debutant. And Rachel, you wanted to talk about um, Rachel Kundanaji, but also um, Barbara Banda, who is the same age as well, but playing in China. Yeah, very interesting. She's got mm. a half full of goals uh, for her club this season. Mm-hmm. And one for the future, I think, being only 23 and being that prolific up front. Should be a 4-4-2 coming into this tournament. But interesting, as this is a young squad. Very young yeah. squad. Very on young average, squad. I think I think I saw they're the youngest team at this tournament on average age, and potentially it's one to look for the next iteration of yeah. the Women's World Cup. And this is similar to a few other sides. Pretty much everyone on debut, to be honest. Mm. It's a, a bit of a fact-finding mission. How far can we go? How far can we push the team? Sure. Not being just here for a fun time, yeah. but essentially just can we do something special? Can we pull up a result or two? And uh, not necessarily get out of the group, but spring a surprise nonetheless. And I mm. think if Zambia were to beat Costa Rica, they'd be very happy. Look, I'd have to agree with you there, Nathan. I think it's interesting, though. They've, they've got um, about, I'll make it around about uh, 11 players 
playing outside of Zambia, right? So 11 of the 23, goalkeeper, uh, Hazel Nali, Margaret Bellamy playing in Turkey. Um, you've got um, Martha Timber playing in uh, Azerbaijan. And you go through it, and then you've got another two midfielders playing in Azerbaijan, Helen Mbunga playing in uh, Spain in the midfield, and then all their attackers, bar one, are playing in, in either Spain or China. It's, you know, really, uh, really eclectic mix there, I think. It certainly is. And, uh, yeah, like you've got a couple of players there from, from in, you've got a couple of players there based in Spain, but you're right to point out they are all over the place. So it must have been a nightmare for manager Bruce and Wape to go and scout them all. Mm. He's, a, he's jet setting all over the world, just looking for these players. Um, very interesting to see how, they, how far they go. They qualified for the tournament through the, uh, the WAFCON last year. They had a quarterfinals penalties win against Senegal. And uh, the goalkeeper, Hazel Nali, got the winning penalty in the shootout, last. How was that? Amazing. How one of the that? five as well. It wasn't down yeah. to like 10th or 11th takers. Yeah. She put her hand up to be one of the five and delivered the, the pressure moment to take Zambia to their first World Cup. What have you made of their recent form? Look, they're, um, they appear to be strong in their own continent, which is, you know, obviously they finished third in the uh, WAFCON. But, uh, you know, in the last 12 months, they've played the likes of Colombia um, and having gone down... Slovenia, having gone down, they've beaten Uzbekistan, lost to South Korea, lost to the Republic of Ireland um, last month, uh, 3-2. So that's uh, one of interest to us. But I had a three-all draw recently against um, Switzerland and are due to play Germany uh, before they uh, head to this part of the world. Tonight, actually. Yeah, it is is tonight. Yes, yeah, as we record, it is tonight. So, um, yeah, look, Nathan, again, a bit patchy. Probably a bit more consistent than Costa Rica, to be fair. I think that's a fair, yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point, and you can't point to the level of opposition either. Some of the teams that Costa Rica were playing, you would expect them to have done better than what they had done. I think losing, particularly for this Zambia team, to some European sides, particularly those that haven't made it to this tournament, does raise the eyebrow a little bit. The likes mm. of Slovenia mm. losing one nil to Slovenia does indeed raise an eyebrow. But as we've been saying, these two sides. I think we'll be battling for third place on the final match day. And anything more than that is an absolute bonus. So, Nathan, time has come. I think we need to go to the game by game. And I think all the listeners know which way this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we need to do the smoke and mirrors on this, lads. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, look, I mean, as we as we flesh it out, things may change, but it's unlikely. Um, so this group is being played in New Zealand. We should hasten to add. So we've got um, uh, Spain versus Costa Rica in Wellington. Thoughts? 4-0 for mine. Yeah, I'm happy to go with 4-0 there as well. I was thinking five, but hey, what's four, what's five? Let's go 4-0. And then we go to Zambia versus Japan in Hamilton. I've got Japan 2-0. Yeah, I was going to say Japan 2-1. Okay. Again, much of a muchness. Yep. So uh, then we go to Spain versus Zambia in Auckland. I think this could be anything. Yeah, I think any any number you could name here could be oh, okay. Yeah, it could happen. Look, I've got down six. I'm going to go four. Okay. Four nil Spain. Yep. Japan versus Costa Rica in Dunedin. Two one. I'm going to go two one as well. There you go. So basically, it's a shootout between Japan and Spain on the last, yep. on match day three. But we'll do Costa Rica versus Zambia from in Hamilton. And I think this will be a lot of fun. Both teams are going home after this match. No pressure. Go out and play some football. I think you might see a lot of goal scoring in this. I'm going to go for a two-all. I will go Costa Rica just edging it slightly. Oh, actually, no. No, I'll go Zambia. I'll go Zambia edging it slightly. 3-2. 
And then we have the group decider, Japan versus Spain out of Wellington. Very interesting. Very interesting. And the way I've set this group up with my scores, Spain would be going through on goal difference as it stands mm-hmm. coming into it. So there's a case, maybe they would play for a draw. Yeah, one, look, one, five yeah. minutes to go. Yeah. Don't push for it. And I think I might go for that. A one or draw. I'm going to go Spain 2-1. So Not I think, with- lads, we have the same group running order. Yes. Well, top two anyway. Top two, exactly the same. No surprise to anyone there that's been listening to this episode. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we both have Spain going in through as the group winners and Japan as the group runner-up. And that sees out Group C. And on the other side of this, we'll go across to Group D and the European champions, the Lionesses. Group D, England, Denmark, China, and Haiti joining us to talk through everything Lionesses. It's a pleasure to be joined by Guardian journalist and author Susie Rack. Susie, welcome to Making Waves, our Women's World Cup preview for 2023. Thanks for having me. Sounds fun. Let's get right into it. Where is the the mood and the expectations sitting for this side? Because I think if you included some key players who are not here in Australia now, they'd be potentially there for taking out the trophy perhaps a favourite, maybe they can eclipse the US. But where does it sit right now? I think that's the key, the the missing players, really. Um, I think expectations, sort of, you know, if you were talking to us in February around the time of the Arnold Clark Cup, the little friendly tournament that England hosts, um, you know, many would have said England have a real, real good shot at the World Cup. Um, you know, it'd be a real proper test of exactly where they sit in in the world after such a successful summer last last year um england summer um and yeah i think that's all changed with with those injuries um partly because some of the positions are so key so obviously um leah williamson is absolutely huge both on and off the pitch because she's such an influential captain um and so hands-on as a captain and a real I was going to say inspiring is, is not the right word, but a real um, thoughtful uh, leader off the pitch into, in the press and things like that, a real good spokesperson for the team in that sense too. So you've lost like someone who is a real, real cog, um, but then also so critical to the way England play and the way Serena Wiegmann likes to play too, out from the back. She's so calm and collected and uh, like it shows in the way that she's been used in midfield sometimes. Um because she's just got a, a brilliant way of, of bringing the ball out. Um, so that's a massive loss. And then obviously Beth Mead is a big loss as well, but maybe slightly less of a loss because I think England's attack, even without her, you know, with the likes of Lauren James having come through, uh, who wasn't at the tournament last summer, uh, Lauren Hemp, Chloe Kelly, there's a real like depth to England's attack uh, there that maybe there isn't at the back quite so much but then when you sort of add those absences onto the loss of Ellen White who retired last summer and Jill Scott who retired as well and you're you're just losing a few too many experienced heads from the team that did the job uh, last year so I mean I would say expectations have, have taken a little bit of a nosedive since sort of that February camp um they're still ambitions um and i think that you know this everyone feels very ambitious about the side feel like it has potential but i think there you know there is a lot of realism there about the state of the team there's a lot of players with not many caps in it and i would say that um perhaps perhaps you know even the quarterfinals at this stage is, is looking like a really really tough test should england top the group 
Did Serena Vigman try and speak to the likes of um, Ellen White and the other players of last year's European success? to try and convince him to, to stay for this World Cup tournament. It's a bit hard because Ellen um, announced that she was pregnant very soon after the oh, tournament. Right, okay. yep. So she's literally, you know, That's, months yep. after the baby, so it's yep. ruled out. And then Jill Scott, I mean, she has very much been enjoying her retirement and has been very vocal about it. And she's a bit older as well. Um, and, you know, she's done, um, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. You know, she's so, so out of the loop now. And I think also there was very much feeling, particularly with Jill, who was um, sort of reaching the peak of her years at the Euros and, you know, didn't play a huge amount. But when she did play, she was very significant. Her influence was very much off the pitch rather than on it. Mm. And I think the feeling was that it it was quite a good time for her to go out on a big high um, and for both of them to a certain extent. But there was it was almost you know sort of accepted with um a lot of love and a bit of an understanding that mm. there were plenty of players sort of stepping up into those roles that that they were sort of leaving um behind you know particularly from a leadership point of view and a morale point of view and that's where the hit has taken a little bit of a toll um with the injured players because then also Millie Bright who is captaining the side without the Williams she's not played since March she's got a knee problem herself so that defense is really like experimental and can will potentially particularly for the first game against Haiti not actually have that many caps in it you know whether mm. they decide to risk Millie Bright for that first game when she's not played is is a big risk at the same time you sort of want the minutes in her legs perhaps against a team that you would like to think that England should um, cruise past fairly easily in order to get her ready for the the next game so there's a real like test there will she be ready will she play and what will England's defence look like if she doesn't because one of the things that I think is not a problem with Serena Wiegmann, but um, is highlighted by these injuries, is that you've got this situation where, uh, you know, at the Euros, she didn't change the starting eleven at mm. all through the entire tournament. It was exactly the same from start to finish, and it's meant sort of it, there's there's not been a huge number of opportunities for some of the more fringe players to really, really get sort of game time experience in an England shirt under their belt. So a lot of these players, uh, Lotto Obamoy, um, Neve Charles, Jess Carter, haven't got a huge number of minutes um, in an England shirt under their belt. And that that's a little bit of a worry and a little bit of a risk. And I think a part of the problem is that the Euros being delayed by year because of COVID has meant that there's only this year gap between the Euros and the World Cup. So the time to actually transition a team is really, really squeezed. And that, that makes it hugely complicated because yeah. you have qualifiers for um, for the Euros or something, I think. Um, anyway, you're playing competitive games mm. in the meantime and there's not really time to experiment. You've not really mm. got many friendlies. There's a little bit of, of playing around during the Arnold Clark Cup, but that was sort of pre-injury as well. So it, it's um, it's a whole load of factors like sort of coming together to reduce England's chances. It's almost like the luck that they had mm. in the Euros has caught up with them a bit because there was a lot of luck, you know, even in terms of like when Serena Wiegman got COVID, it was a really convenient point mm-hmm. where, you know, <laughs> final group game, it didn't really matter that she wasn't there. They'd already gone through. There was a few other COVID um, cases, but they were to the fringe players. There weren't any major injuries like there were for, say, France or Germany, mm. Alex Pop getting injured in the final, that kind of stuff. So, mm. um, or in the warm up of the final. So, that, that there was a whole lot of luck. <laughs> 
during the Euros and it feels like all of that suddenly, you know, sort of just caught up a little bit. Um, I still rate England's chances at, at doing well and like it'll be really interesting. Like for me, it's really exciting to see um, the impact of what Serena Wiegmann and her assistant Ayan are able to do between now um, or the start of their, their pre-tournament camp and the tournament and how that like what that shape of that defense and the style of it and the cohesiveness of it looks like come the tournament I think is going to be like actually really interesting to see because that's that's where all of the question marks are yeah and there's so many things surrounding personnel uh shaped questions around the side the shape of the defense is Millie Bright fit that was something I was uh, about to ask you about so thank you for clearing that up already (laughs) um particularly in the number nine position as well. Rachel mm. Daly's had a great season. I would have expected Alessia Russo to start, mm. but Rachel Daly's been given the number nine shirt. Is there anything to read into that? Or is it squad numbers just, they don't really mean anything? Well, I think there's quite a lot to read into it because like say last uh, last year, there was a very, very strict start in 11 and mm. they wore the one to 11 shirt. And that so like in that sense, you can read quite a lot into it. Um, it's interesting because obviously Rachel Daly being picked as a striker for this tournament when she played as left back for the Euros adds another level of disruption to that that defensive line as well, um, which in theory they could revert to, but would be crushingly <laughs> cruel for Rachel Daly, who was top scorer in the Women's Super League and like just absolutely phenomenal up top for Villa in a team that is not necessarily, um, you know, going to deliver the goods for your striker week in, week out in the way that, say, a Chelsea or an Arsenal or Man City are. Mm. So from from like that point of view, it's really interesting because she's she's overperformed, if anything, given like the players that she's playing with. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's tough because Alessia Russo was so effective as an impact sub um, at the Euros alongside Ella Toon that I think maybe there's a little bit of a desire to keep that impact um, mm. because there's not a huge amount of depth on the bench. Um, and... I would argue that maybe the sort of the final third of the season, um, Alessia Russo sort of went off the boil, feels a little bit harsh of a way of putting it, but just looked tired um, and was struggled for goals a little bit and didn't quite look as potent as she did in the first part of the season and during the Euros. So I kind of feel like there's there's some logic there to, to sort of, starting with Rachel Daly ahead of her. I think there's also a really strong case for Beth England too, because she had a phenomenal season at an even weaker team, um, became Spurs top scorer having joined in January. Mm. Um, And yeah, I mean, just an incredible like response from her to try and drive her way into the team. And she did. So like for me, I, I, I sort of feel like, you know, there's, there's a real balance to be had between finding who is the right, uh, person or people to make an impact off the bench and who starts and I, I haven't seen Alessia Russo have a strong 90 minutes for England so in that sense either having her come off at a certain point or bringing her on at a certain point feels like quite a sensible decision um, whether Rachel Daly or Beth England can fill that starting role um, and put in performances worthy of staying on the pitch for 90 minutes is like it remains to be seen it's a little bit of an unknown um but like quite an exciting one because it's just such a it's it's going to be such a different team from last last year um frank kirby is another huge loss mm. uh, another knee injury not an acl but another knee injury and i i think if anything that could be key to how effective the um the attack is and uh 
and the number nine is because she is like just absolutely majestic um finds the space and the past that no one else seems to manage and Ella Toon again sort of similar to Alessia Russo is is getting there but she's not she's just not at Frank Kirby level um and it's going to be a really really difficult to ask to sort of slot into that role and be as influential and create the chances necessary uh for England to really take the best teams to task I think like the one of the biggest problems is I think this team will do fine against teams in the group stage um and those sort of lower down the rankings but it's when they come up against the best um and like you need to make the most of those one or two chances you get that, that there's going to be a problem um and then also defensively you know there's question marks there over whether they can hold up against some of the you know the best attacks in the world so there's there's a lot of question marks and not many answers at the moment um but that in a way kind of makes it quite exciting and i think the fact that the expectations are lowered mm. almost makes you able to enjoy that a little bit more because i don't think anyone now is necessarily expecting england to win this and if anything like has sort of got a bit of an eye on the euros in two years time and what this team will become in time for that um so yeah i think if anything that just makes it a little bit more a little bit more fun in a sense in that there's there's just not there's not the same pressure to 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 go all the way that there maybe was even just a few short months ago i'm glad you mentioned frank kirby because i'm looking at the uh, the midfield and there's still a bit of experience there but looking at the squad overall as well right who will step into frank kirby's shoes is it more than likely going to be able to um and who else um is there in the squad that you think can be an impact player aside from Alessia Russo. Yeah, I think I think Ella Toon is like nailed on to fill that role because that's been the way Serena Wiegmann has sort of played um, since she got she went out injured with um, with Toon taking that place. So I, I think that's sort of nailed on. I'm not necessarily sure it's a hundred percent the right decision. Um, or like I personally would i mean i always i always feel a bit funny saying that because like who am i to doubt the two-time european uh, cup winning manager um who reached the last world cup final and you know is um in england a little bit of a god um so like in, in that sense i'm like well fine yeah i've got this opinion but it's probably wrong in comparison like she usually knows what she's talking about but my, my instinct would be to play someone like jordan Nobbs, who is hugely experienced um has you know joined aston villa in mm-hmm. um january has got that relationship with rachel daly from club level um and like can't remember who i was talking to i think it might be i was chatting to Jonas side actually the arsenal manager and he was he was we we're talking about england he was talking about how important it is to when you've not got a huge amount of time with teams to play like at international level to play on the existing relationships they have at club level mm. uh, and really take advantage of that and so if you're not going to play alessia russo with ella toon then maybe you should think about playing rachel daly and jordan Nobbs for that reason um so like, i like the idea of that of that being an experiment but i don't think it'll happen i think it's going to be um ella toon that is really sort of given the nod um in that position i think um yeah, I'm I'm just really curious about Jordan Dobbs in England because she's never, whenever she's come in, she's never really got a huge amount of opportunity under Beekman, but she was injured for a significant part of it. And, you know, there's been numerous others ahead of her. So to a certain extent, it's been circumstanced, but I feel like she offers a lot um, up top 
like in a very dynamic way that England is sort of missing at the moment. Um, She was training separately from the team before they left for Australia. So both her and Millie Bright were. So I I get the impression that it wasn't anything too serious and they were going to be back in like the fold very, very soon. But maybe there's something to that too. Um, In terms of impact players, like I said, I think Alessia Russo is the key. Um, And it's a real shame because Ella Toon... has, you know, then the pair of them coming on was just so, it works so, so well that I kind of can't look beyond that, really. In terms of other impact players, you're starting to get a little bit thinner. Beth England, um, if if Rachel Daly is starting, then yes, she is technically an impact player, but I, I've never, I, I feel like she's very much a, a player that thrives on, um, on regular minutes and regular game time um, and sort of needs a starting place and needs the the sort of time and patience to be able to build up a decent run of form in any team be it uh, be it at Tottenham be it at um, Chelsea even be it at, at England level um so I I've never I've never really seen her come on and make a big impact in an England shirt but that said she's never come into an England side as a as an impact sub having played as many minutes as regularly as she has um prior so in that sense, again, another unknown know that you're flow, flowing into the mix. Can a fit and confident Beth England be an impact player? Potentially, and maybe that's what Serena Wiegmann sees in her. And then you're looking at people like Neve Charles and stuff who have been impactful for Chelsea when they've come off the bench now and again, but are not very experienced. Um, you will have one of likely Lauren James or Chloe Kelly um, able to come off the bench as well. Generally, Serena Wiegmann has started with... Uh, Lauren James of late and use Chloe Kelly as an impact player and I think that could prove quite effective but either of them can play that role um again Lauren James is another player that just doesn't to me look capable of lasting a full 90 minutes um at the level that you know we sort of expect from her um so either way you're you're going to be making that change at some point be it whether she starts or comes on so I sort of feel like that axis is is a really strong one. The Chloe Kelly, Lauren James, who plays in um, on the right hand side and uh, and who starts, I, I like and and who finishes. I don't think it really matters too much because I think they'll both probably be pretty pretty good. But yeah, in terms of impact players beyond that, you're 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 not really looking at much more. Susie, changing tack slightly, we should mention this story that's come out in the last week or so surrounding the players and the FA and the bonuses for the tournament. Is it a massive story? akin to something we've seen out of Spain or Canada or France? Is it something that can just be ironed out relatively easily? Yeah, I mean, in theory, it could be ironed out relatively easily in that, like, it's, like, it it may well change going forward, whether it changes for this tournament and they get paid bonuses in addition to the money that is being allocated by FIFA to players is another thing. But I think the frustration from the players comes from the fact that basically the, the decision of the FA not to pay players separate performance related bonuses from their own pocket in addition to the money that they're given by FIFA um, means that they're being put on the same level as teams like Haiti and Jamaica and ones that, you know, have federations that aren't particularly supportive rather than like the US who are getting performance related bonuses from US soccer in addition to um, their money from FIFA. So in that sense, like you can understand the frustration, right? Because there's like a team and a federation claiming to be world leaders um, and yet valuing players significantly less in terms of their contribution um, and then frustration as well because they there has been although it's been relaxed slightly a bit of a 
a ban on um, players sort of using their social media accounts and stuff to advertise to, for their partners and stuff during the tournament, their personal ones. So whilst you can also, again, understand why the FA wouldn't want players bogged down in that kind of stuff while they're in the middle of a tournament, at the same time, you know, there's scheduled posts that you can do and things like that, and your agents can take charge of it and things. And that's a big chunk of your... Um, you know, <laughs> like ability to, you know, make a bit of an income during the tournament wiped out. And then you're also not getting bo- performance rating bonuses from the FA too. So they're just a real like feeling of undervaluing there. And whilst I think, you know, it will get ironed out at some point, even if it's not for this tournament, and I don't think it's going to cause huge eruptions in terms of like, you know, players refusing to play or anything like that on the scale of some of these other situations that are far more serious on conditions and pay and stuff like that. Um, although this does, you know, it's it's an important issue. I think the bigger the bigger thing surrounding it is that the players and the FA are not on the same page <laughs> at the moment. And uh, around the Euros, there was just a real feeling of cohesiveness between clubs, between players, between agents, between the FA. There was just a real like unity and it really felt like everyone was sort of in tune. And if that very much doesn't feel the case going into this World Cup because you had as well as this bonus issue, which has angered agents, obviously, because they've worked out deals for their clients that are now having to be reneged on because of these rules. Um, and also aren't getting, you know, their, their players aren't getting performance-related bonuses. They fight for their, their players. You've also had the um, uh, the issue of the release dates for the tournament, which were really up in the air. And, you know, there's a real big battle between clubs and the FA and players got very much caught in the middle of that um, ahead of the tournament. And so there's there's just quite a few things that have just disrupted, just sort of ruptured the harmony um, of of the the sort of the team and the environment around it. That just sort of ring a few alarm bells because it was like a really really key part of the sort of wave of um, success and joy and stuff that sort of went with the the Euros win last summer. So there there is I, like I that that's an interesting part for me is how that impacts a little bit more broadly in that sense in terms of like the cohesiveness of the the whole unity and environment around the team you know not everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet in the way that they were and that could have an impact on performances on the pitch um and how you respond to those performances on the pitch as well if they don't go your way and stuff if there's not that cohesiveness and unity will you suddenly get um you know players frustrated at uh at staff and the manager for for you know reasons that they maybe wouldn't have previously because there are underlying tensions there and stuff so that for me is the interesting part of it um the bonuses are an issue and the discussions are ongoing i actually checked checked in today to find out but they have restarted the talks and stuff but obviously now the team is in australia that becomes complicated because no one wants it to get in the way of preparations for the tournament not the players not not the agents not the staff at the fa whoever it may be so you've got this this situation of the players being desperate to resolve it and have an answer for the world cup the fa essentially saying it's not going to happen kind of thing and also a desire to sort of brush it under the carpet until the tournament is done too um which yeah causes all kinds of different (laughs) tensions Sounds like a ploy from the FA to try and help manage the expectations of the English public, perhaps. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> um, strongest 11 that England can put out from this 23? Oh, that's a great they? question. Great question. Um, definitely Mary Earps in goal. Um, you know, she's uh, 
well, goalkeeper of the year, FIFA best player, best goalkeeper of the year, whatever the weird award is called. Um, and then in, ter- in terms of defence, it's a really tough one because it really depends on whether Millie Bright is fit or not. If Millie Bright is fit, you're talking about Lucy Bronze, Millie Bright, Alex Greenwood, and then either Neve, Neve Charles or Jess Carter. I would probably go with Jess Carter just because she's got a bit of a relationship with Millie Bright and there's you know potential for that there. Uh, midfield, Georgia Stanway, uh, Ella Toon and Kira Walsh. I would argue myself for Jordan Nobbs over Toon and to have Toon maintaining her impact from the bench. But I think that's the lineup we're going to see. And I do think it is a very strong one as well. So really, really good uh, midfield. And then up front, um, Kelly or James? I think I would go Chloe Kelly, um, Rachel Daly and Lauren Hemp. But again, like it's a hard one. Again, I think Chloe Kelly and Lauren James are very interchangeable, and that's I mean that's a good thing that there's there's difficult <laughs> difficult choices to make because it implies that there is a little bit of depth there, but nowhere near as much depth as they would have had had uh, Beth Mead, Frank Kirby, and Leah Williamson not been injured, which is just such a massive blow. Yeah, very interesting as to how this team lines up and how much rotation there is in the flanks as well, which is uh, something perhaps that Denmark and China, something extra that they can worry about aside from the 11 that come on. There's so much quality uh, in different positions. Susie, it's getting to prediction time now, and we'll have a look at the rest of the group and the, the, the fixtures. Haiti, Denmark and China in order. In order. Interestingly, that England are playing against Canada for a pre-tournament friendly, a potential round of 16 opponent. Do you think there's going to be a bit of mind games in the team selection? Anything sort of on that front? And how do you see the games going in the group phase? I'm really baffled by the decision to play Canada. I, I reckon it, my instinct, and this is no way informed in any way, <laughs> is that it's probably been very, very difficult to get an opponent so close to the tournament. And Bev Priestman, former England assistant manager, is manager of Canada and it's a sort of you scratch my back I'll scratch yours kind of thing is is my guess of the situation but again like I say it's not informed in any way it's a complete guess um so I reckon that's the scenario there I think you probably will see like a little bit of a, a little bit of a more experimental team as a result I mean Serena Wiegmann's not really one for doing that for mind games or veering from the plan too much that may be a case that she just literally wants to see her starting 11 as it's going to play in the tournament um but I think there is a little bit of an argument that she might mix things up and um just sort of get some um get some eyes on some new partnerships that maybe haven't been seen before which I imagine is probably what they've been doing quite a lot in training um so yeah it's going to be a really interesting one in terms of the the group stage I mean I mean, Haiti should be a walk in the park, right? Like, it, sh- it should be a fairly straightforward game. But England have historically struggled against team that, that's teams that sort of bank up against them. Um, under Serena Meeman, that changed significantly. Um, the run up until sort of last month or the month before uh, of being undefeated under her sort of spoke to that. There were some big games with a lot of goals and stuff. But I, there's there's not been as many goals scored by England as you perhaps would have liked to have seen so close to a tournament that is maybe slightly concerning. There doesn't seem to be that kind of um, confidence in the in the strike force that you would maybe hope for. In a way, playing Haiti first and having an opportunity to put some goals um, away in a really convincing fashion could help change that a little bit. Um, 
China, again, shouldn't be too much of a problem. Denmark, I think, is going to be a little bit more of a test. Um, you know, we all know how brilliant Panilla Harder is, but they've got a pretty solid team around them. Um, they only didn't make the uh, qualification for the last World Cup because of um, forfeiting uh, one of their games uh, in protest at, like, paying conditions and things. So, um, which eventually then led to them not, not qualifying and having to go through... Um, go through playoffs and not not getting there so it was it was a bit of a a bit of a blow but also sort of yeah something that was off field rather than on field that that led to that so they're actually a much stronger side than their like record in major tournament suggests and things and they could cause some problems i think um you know i think they could score some goals and it's just whether england can find their their shooting boots that seem to have gone missing in the past couple of months um that will determine whether they sort of ease through the group or sort of scrape through the group um, to a certain extent. But I think there's no doubt on them qualifying. I would say there's very little doubt on them qualifying top, um, which would hopefully set up as long as Australia do do the job that we all expect of them, um, uh, of them lining up against Canada in the last 16. I think Canada are uh, um, a really, really good, well-organised side, really, really well coached, but are missing a few key players themselves that could... um, that could make them the slight the the easier the easier draw than if they were to get Australia. Which nation takes out the World Cup if it can't be England? Who wins it? Well, so I mean, it's 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 always hard to look past the US, and I think the fact that they're mid-season really like really really benefits them because their players are really really fresh and on it. Whereas you know you look at how late the tournament has been held you know having me pushed back because of Qatar uh, there's been a big gap between sort of European seasons ending and the tournament starting that means that players aren't as fresh as maybe the Americans are um, I really like the look of Germany until their quite incredible defeat to Zambia uh, which was pretty special um, ahead of this tournament so that's that's an interesting one to see you know sort of you know what they what they look like come the actual tournament starting um, but I actually like Australia in my dark horses I just Sam Kerr you know I've watched her week in week out in the Women's Super League and I just I would never ever ever bet on her to not make an impact on the biggest of stages and I feel like the narrative is written for it and then you know I feel like Australia is finally at a stage where the team around her are good enough to do the job as well I mean you know so yeah, I'm lucky enough to be a, an Arsenal fan, so I get to watch uh, Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley regularly. Obviously, like I say, we've got Sam Kerr in the league. Um, there's you know Alana Kennedy in the league. Mary Fowler's at Manchester City now. Um, Ellie Carpenter is across the pond at Leon. So I watched um, uh, Chelsea play Leon this season. Arsenal play Leon earlier on in the season. Like we get eyes on a lot of these Australian players, although she's obviously been injured um, a fair amount. Um, and I like I really rate the chances of the team on home soil. You know, I've seen the impact of what playing on home soil can do to a side. Um, you know, it's such a cliche to say, oh, it's the twelfth man, but um, but like the impact last summer um, was just next level um and ne- it just never felt like England were going to lose um and I sort of I'm, I'm starting to get that vibe about Australia I feel like everything's clicking at the right time um for the team and I'm like you know I've seen them perform well you know like at the Olympics um where you know obviously knocked out Team GB but then performed really really strongly against the US as well and I just feel like I feel like it's all coming together 
at the right time in the way that it did for England last year. Um, so yeah, Australia are actually my dark horses without wanting to like kiss ass at the Australians too much <laughs> and, uh, and ingratiate myself with the locals. It's genuinely what I think. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I've got one quick question for you. It's not a quick question, but what did the success of the Lionesses last summer, last European summer, do for the women's game locally in, in, in England and the UK? Oh, like phenomenal. I mean, it's just exponentially grown it. Um, the, what was so impactful was the Lionesses using the platform afterwards to um, call on the government to, um, to legislate for equal access to football in schools for girls and to do something about it. Um, and that, like, even, you know, obviously the government then going into talks with the Lionesses and then months later agreeing to it and committing a load of money towards it and stuff is, is huge. Obviously, there's still a way to go. You know, you can't trust any government to actually deliver on the promises they make. Um, so there's still a lot of pushing to do. But just the fact that a football team was able to have that impact that could potentially have, like, such a, a long-lasting um, effect on the future of the game in the country was was incredible really and then I mean just in terms of like the visibility of the players of the game the attendances since then you know Arsenal broke the WSL attendance record two or three times last season and then sold out the Emirates Stadium for the Champions League uh, semi-final against Wolfsburg at the Emirates as well um, you saw some other really big uh, sell-out crowds too um, at various grounds so it's it's just massively increased the audience the appetite for the game and the the like the number of girls and like young people interested in playing um you, you know you see players on tv shows obviously like jill scott did um uh, did i'm a celebrity get me out of here but that you know there have been players on you know graham norton and things like that over you know new year's eve and stuff and then you've had um you know players on the front cover of fashion magazines and uh you know non-sporting partnerships and things like that too so it's just like leveled up in a way that i don't think any of us could have predicted we were all like predicting big things and predicting huge impact but it is just particularly the manner in which the the players challenged the government to do more like we just couldn't ever have foreseen that happening and i don't think it's going to be able to be rolled back on too because there's just so much like love and joy around women's football and the lionesses in particular at the moment that it's it's hard to see it ever turning backwards and i think everyone is sort of upping their ambitions you know all clubs are sort of have looked at what arsenal did last season and gone hang on a second that they're onto a good thing there's a real willingness to like knowledge share and stuff as well and not sort of be protective about that too um across clubs and stuff so yeah, it's it's in a really good place and a really exciting place, which like, yeah, sort of, you know, you sort of want every country to have that, you know, every country that but not just hosts a major tournament, but just has a little bit of awakening around a major tournament, um, regardless of whether it's in their country or not. You sort of it's just, you know, I mean, look at Zambia um, beating Germany. You would like to think that that they have a great tournament and there's a huge change in the attitude um, 
towards women's football in that country as a result of even just that pre-tournament friendly, let alone um, what they might actually be able to do within the tournament itself because they're just so like fast and exhilarating to watch um, and just sort of place with so much freedom and joy um, and aren't very sort of cautious in the way that you maybe see teams new to a tournament um, being that it's just really really exciting so you sort of hope that the fans just everywhere are sort of galvanized by watching their teams play at a major tournament bearing in mind the context of all of the things that are wrong on prize money on pay on conditions and stuff because like you imagine if we didn't have those in the way and how big mm. and how good it could be like i mean if players weren't having to worry about any of that crap and focus on the football then like how good could it be um is like a huge question so yeah like i hope that you know people think about it in that context too because yeah it's going to be fun it certainly is susie fascinating to have a chat with you about the lionesses in this world cup it's going to be a fantastic tournament i'm really excited to see how this knockout phase is going to shape up because you have so many big teams particularly on this australian side of the draw and it's going to be great to see how it all unfolds thank you very much for joining us here on making waves thank you guys Great to talk to Susie Rack from The Guardian about the Lionesses and their chances at this tournament. Laz, it was a great chat, wasn't it? Oh, it was fascinating. Absolutely brilliant. And I found it important to ask that question about the impact on the women's game after England's success in the last European summer, because that's something that Australia will have to deal with with regard to the success of the tournament, but should the Matildas actually finish in the the top four as well, right? Win the whole thing. Or win the whole thing. So yeah. yeah, and the impact that Susie was talking about, perhaps that's something we can look forward to with the Matildas if they are successful in the next couple of months. Um, look, to the same extent, perhaps not, just because of the different culture, England and Australia, but of course there'd be a massive, massive impact if the Matildas are able to go all the way. Do you think that Susie was underplaying the uh, the English chances here in this tournament? Because yes, there are they are injury ravaged, right? They are missing three critical players. They've lost players in retirement. Is it just the case of managing expectations? And that's why I, I was being a bit um, facetious with regards to the FA trying to step in and, do, you know, maybe it's applied by the FA, right? <laughs> but I find it really good that the English are actually managing their their, their expectations um, and they will be playing with a lot of freedom in this World Cup, I think. Yeah, I think so as well. Yes, it's perhaps uh, managing expectations, but you just look at their road to the final Perhaps they'll be playing gold medalist Canada in the round of 16, Germany in the quarterfinals, who they only just beat at the Euros last year. And in theory, it never works in theory, but England are slightly worse than what they were 12 months ago, and Germany is slightly better. That game was decided very much on, on a fine hair, so maybe it would swing the other way. Mm. Very tight, nonetheless. And then a semi-final, perhaps against Australia or France. Neither of those are easy teams. As soon as... You get out of the groups. This England side, it is just difficult opponent, difficult opponent. There's no easier game here. It's not like, say, on the other side of the draw, and not to disparage any of the teams there, yeah. but it's not quite to the same level as this Australian half. Yeah, and yeah I was going to say think that's I think, part of it. I think that is part of it. Yeah, this top top half of the draw is is very challenging once once you get into the round of sixteen. There are no easy games at all. No, certainly not. Certainly not. But let's shall we talk about the rest of this group? Yeah, let's go for it. And let's kick things off with Denmark, shall we? Yeah, why not? Ranked 13th in the world, the Red and Whites. They didn't qualify for the 2019 World Cup. They reached silver in the 2017 Euros. A group stage exit in the last Euros last year. But that really doesn't tell the story of this Danish team, does it? No, it doesn't. But I look at their recent results and it is a bit of a mixed bag, 
right? They had a bit of a mixed bag with regard to the Euros, you know, having two losses, both to Germany and Spain, respectively, right? And uh, beating their um, Scandinavian counterparts in Finland 1-0. So a bit mixed, right, to say the least. Uh, having played the Matildas and uh, going down 3-1. So, but of late, they have put a string of uh, four wins together only to uh, lose to Spain early this month, right? So there is a bit of form there. And in, in those four victories, we should mention that Sweden is in, in, in that group and likewise Norway, right? So, and Japan. So quite strong contenders from uh, from that group. But yeah, it's they're in their fifth World Cup this time around. You know, they could upset the apple cart here. Yeah, and for mine, it is a shootout between them and China to get into second place. But we'll talk about them and the game by game later on. I think Denmark are a bit of a, a roughie for this tournament. They were pitched as a roughie for the last Men's World Cup, and that didn't go too well for them. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> hopefully history is not repeating itself. But potential Matilda's round of 16 opponents, mm. I think, of course, you'd rather play Denmark than England. Yes. But by no means is Denmark uh, a side that uh, you go, oh, yes, we're playing Denmark. We're in the no. quarterfinals. No, that's true. And there is so much quality in this team. We spoke about uh, Peniel Harder with Susie mm. Rack during our chat. She's one of the most exciting midfielders at this tournament. She's up there. You know, over 140 caps, 70 goals. <laughs> that says a lot about her quality. Yeah, captain of the side. Only two players in this team have more caps than her. And yeah, she's going to have to carry this team out of the group, particularly in that match against China. And really, you look around, there's a few other good players as well. Interesting, actually, that uh, Peniel Hart has been listed as a forward in this squad and not a midfielder, but mm. she'll definitely be playing in the midfield. Uh, you would you would expect. Oh, I wouldn't expect her to see up see her up front at all. But there's a, a few other goals in this side as well. Signa Brun has 33 caps and 18 goals. Plays for Lyon, who we all know Lyon are, are one of the best sides in the world in the in the women's side of things. And a lot of recognisable clubs, a lot of good clubs around as well, where these players are playing at. They're not. There's not too many players based in Denmark. There's only the two goalkeepers that are based home, based home in Denmark themselves. And Lena Christensen, perhaps would be first choice anyway. Mm-hmm. So these are players that are playing amongst the best in the game for the most part. And this is a side that can really do some damage. Yeah, Bruno is my player to watch, actually. Uh, you know, 33 caps, 18 goals, only 25 years of age, playing at Olympic Lyonnais, who we know through early Carpenter, but also their, you know, the storied history in European football. So yeah, really exciting to see, uh, see her play in this group. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They absolutely blitzed qualifying Denmark. Eight games played, eight wins, scoring 40 goals, only conceding twice. It really seems to be a case that there's some elite teams in European qualifying, and it's great for UEFA to have it in the same format as the men's where you have groups of five or six. You do get some big score lines. We're talking about England just before they beat Latvia 20-0 in a qualifier. So it's only going to get better, you would would hope. Um, Yeah, absolutely. But as I say, this Denmark side looked really good on paper coming into this tournament, and they're only one of two teams based over in WA. In terms of their training camp, They're, they've got uh, a nice double tree Hilton on the waterfront in Perth, beautiful spot, mm. and yeah. that helps out because they're playing uh, two games in Perth against China and Haiti on match day one and three. Correct, correct. But the trip across the eastern seaboard against England in match day two. Let's talk about China, Les. The Steel Roses, fourteenth in the world. This is a tough group if you just look at FIFA rankings. Great nickname, You've got by England. Way. Sorry, yes, yeah, Steel Roses. Great nickname. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, China 14th ranked in the world. This is a tough group based on rankings because you've got Denmark 13th, China 14th alongside England. Uh, We'll come on to Haiti in a moment, but a little bit on the other end of the spectrum here, but it's a tough group. It's almost a group of death. It's it's on that side of things anyway. 
I would contend that that this is probably the group of death based on what the rankings. Yeah, one of these top, one of these two, one of these three teams is going to miss out, right? Yeah, and three teams in the top fifteen is crazy. Yeah, no, indeed. But China have a good reputation in women's football on the national stage. Uh, no titles at the Women's World Cup, but they made it to the knockouts back in 2019. They lost out to Italy on that day. Nine-time champions of Asia, the reigning champions of Asia. They won it last year in 2022 in the Olympics in Tokyo. Didn't go too well for them. But I think this is also a side that's going under the radar a little bit here because partly I'd say it's down to their recent form. It's a bit patchy. They're not playing too many games either. Recently had a a doubleheader against Russia where they won both games and uh, kudos to them for doing that. But aside from that, they lost 3-0 to Spain, two draws against Switzerland and Ireland and a loss 4-1 to Sweden. Mm. It's a team with a big reputation, but perhaps not coming into this tournament on on their best form. No, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Look, they do play friendly against Brazil uh, on the Gold Coast in the week uh, prior to the World Cup. Likewise, they've got one um, in Sydney against Colombia, actually, as well. So um, four days later. So uh, it looks like they'll be well prepared going into the World Cup. Now, I know that they'll be based out of Adelaide as well. Yeah, which is very interesting as well because they're playing two games in Adelaide themselves. Great place to to go and have a a warm-up camp and they'll be training at the uh, Croatian Sports Centre is interesting indeed. Uh, Laz, who's your player to watch? Yeah, look, you mentioned that the, that they're Asian champions. They're quite strong, although their form has been a bit patchy. Look, I'm going to mention uh, Shen Mingyu, who's uh, at Celtic, and Wang Shuang, who's at Racing the Wheel. I think they're two players too. One's a midfielder, one's an attacker. I think that you know they're two players to keep an eye on in this side. Yeah, for mine, I've, I picked out Wang Shuang playing for Racing Louisville, uh, winger. The, the team seems to be built around her, from what I can tell. Uh, for mine, the key player, though, is uh, Wang Shan Shan, uh, who plays for um, Zhanghan University uh, in China. But she is uh, a, a typical uh, target forward, because China likes to play a little bit more on the a Route 1 style. And uh, she's going to be up there looking for flick-ons and all sorts. And really, those I just love a strike partnership. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> we don't see enough of them anymore. Not, not these days. <laughs> Not these days. Um, look, yeah, I, I think your characterization of this group, Nathan, going through it is correct. This is the closest thing that we have to a group of death. I just don't know if China are going to be able to come out of this group. Or It all hinges on that game against Denmark, I think. And it's match day one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's um, no pressure. And perhaps playing two friendlies in Australia leading into the tournament, something that not many others have done, some have gone for no friendlies at all, maybe they'll be ready to go and they can catch Denmark unawares. Yeah, correct, correct. Look, playing in Perth, so who knows how that game is going going to, to, to pan out. It's just going to be a fascinating game. And like you said, match day one, and we'll get to it, you know, the preview in a minute. But it's this group is really tasty, actually, when you look at it. Yeah. Let's talk about Haiti now, Laz. Our friends from CONCACAF, uh, Los, Gre- Los Grenadiers. Oh, it was the, the, the Grenadiers. You took the words right out of my mouth there. <laughs> <laughs> Another great nickname. Yes. And they're ranked 53rd in the world. It's their highest ever ranking. So this team, you could say based on that, that it's the best they've ever been. They're on debut at this Women's World Cup. They were grouped in the 2022 Women's CONCACAF Championships. They reached a semi-final, though it back in 1991 as their best ever result. Uh, This is a side that really, we're not going to be expecting too much from them, if anything, but they do have a couple of dangerous players, Laz. Melchi Adumane, Mm -hmm. if you're unaware, Gold does a next-gen where they pick out a whole bunch of Wonder Kids every year. Yes. This player who plays for Rem won the next gen last year as the best young wonder kid in women's football in uh, 2022. And it's good that uh, they did that. And 
maybe some uh, foreshadowing there because she scored the two goals that actually got them to this tournament. Both goals against Chile, including a 98th minute winner. I was just about to say that. I, I recall that game in, in February and I wanted to mention that they did come through those uh, intercontinental, intercontinental playoffs with a lot of drama, right? So, you know, fantastic to have uh, Haiti make their uh, debut at this World Cup, you know, in this way. And again, I reckon you've been reading my notes because that's the player that I was going to mention as the player to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you're doing that through Zoom, but anyhow. You need to stop sharing your screen, mate. Ah, oh, of course, of course. <laughs> uh, but look, uh, you know, a lot of players based in France, we should mention, from uh, from the squad. Um, yeah, it's, look, we're not expecting Haiti to get through the group, but I think they'll, I think they'll, you know, provide a few challenging moments for, for the teams that they do come up against. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one big injury blow for this squad. It's Claire Constant, the centre-back. Mm. Arguably their best centre-back. She's missing the tournament altogether, which is a big shame for her and the team. But look, we'll be, I think we'll be tipping them to come away with not too much from the games. There's three tricky fixtures. FIBA have not done them any favours whatsoever with the draw. But we shall see. They're playing one warm-up friendly against South Korea in Seoul. That one, that one's coming up very soon. In Brisbane against England, in Adelaide against China, and in Perth against Denmark for their three matches. Anything other than nil point, as they would say, mm-hmm. because they speak French and hazy, Correct. <laughs> uh, would be regarded as success, I would say. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. Should we go to the game by game? Let's do it. Let's do it. Kicking things off with match day one. England against Haiti in Brisbane. Laz, what's your score? I'm going to go England 3-0. I've gone 4-0. Okay. And Denmark against China over in Perth. This is the big game of the group. Oh, jeez. I'm going to go draw 2 all. Yeah, I had a one all. <laughs> there you go. Match day two, England against Denmark here in Sydney. I'm, um, I'll be there for this one. Fantastic. Got, got tickets for this one. So uh, I'm going to go England 2-1. Now it's you who are reading my notes. Mm. I've got 2-1 as well. <laughs> there you go. And China against Hathio down in Adelaide. This will look good on TV, I think. Oh, yeah. At High They're Marsh. only playing four or five games down there at Highmarsh. And mm. it should all, all four of them should be fantastic. Uh, I'm going to go China 2-0. Got 2-1 for the Chinese. Okay. So okay. heading into match day three, I've got England on six, China on four, Denmark on one, and Haiti on nil. And I have it exactly the same. There we go. And as we head into match day three, China against England. Mm. What do you think? I'm going to go England 2-1. I've got a 3-0. Okay. And Haiti against Denmark. In Perth. Keep it. Keep in mind that Denmark have to win. Yeah, and I think they do. And I think Denmark will win 2-0. Yeah, 3-1 on this end. We've picked the same again, Laz. We've picked England ahead of Denmark. We've agreed on who we think is going to get out of the group. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee we've got at least one of them wrong already. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But, but uh, very interesting that we've picked the same. Yeah, it'll make the bracket talk later on in the last uh, preview episode. Uh, pretty interesting, I think. I think so. We might have a couple of different differences in there. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and maybe we got something different for groups A and B coming up. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And that's the next preview that we do on Making Waves and our special here on the Back Peg podcast. And I uh, just wanted to thank everyone for listening and their comments. And I wanted to thank Susie and Joe for their contribution and and their expertise on this episode. But uh, looking forward to getting into the home, the host nations and groups A and B. Yeah, we're getting to the, the end of our group by group preview. I think we're going to have a bit of a bumper pod for Group B. Well, I think we might end up splitting it. So we end up doing five preview shows 
of the groups plus our knockout bracket at the end. Yeah. So just to extend it a little bit further. Yeah, it looks like that. Thanks again to everyone for for their comments and and listening and sharing and subscribing. So I'm very thankful for that and hope you're enjoying this uh, Making Waves preview series. Yeah, because we certainly are. Thank you once again for listening to the show and we'll speak to you soon.